You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so tonight we're going to be in Job 15 through 17. We're approaching slowly, maybe the halfway point. Uh, but we're entering the second round of conversations between Job and his friends. And so we've, we've gotten to this point to where we've seen a Job, who Job is. We've been introduced to him. We've inter- been introduced to this heavenly court. We've learned about Job's integrity. We've learned of Satan's desire to trip up men. And then we've seen that through the hand of God, Job's experienced all this tragedy, about as much tragedy as any man can possibly imagine. All of his possessions have been taken away. That includes his family. He's struck with disease. He's been relegated to a trash heap outside the city. We've seen his three friends travel from far distance in a supposed attempt to comfort him, but to this point, they provided anything but comfort, right? And so we've seen each one of these friends take a turn speaking with Job. And now, like I said, we enter this second round of of conversation. And each friend is going to antagonize Job even more deeply, and tensions are going to rise, right? And so in chapter 15, we're back to Eliphaz. And he's going to continue his argument based on experience that we saw earlier. And I think if there's one kind of main idea tonight that, that I got from this, that hopefully you will see as well, but I think we see the power that an entrenched worldview can have on an individual. You know, the way they see the world and how deeply entrenched that is in their life, um, it can affect the way they see everything. And so we're going to take a deep look into Elevaz's uh, second remarks to Job. And we're going to look at Job's response as well. Uh, but we're going to mainly stick to what Eliphaz has to say. And so um, we saw earlier in chapters 4 and 5 that Eliphaz spoke, and he focused heavily on the value of experience. It was a big deal to him, was personal experience. And he talked, we talked about how experience can be valuable, but it should never be our primary source of information, right? So personal experience what you experience on a day-to-day basis, the things that you've seen, they should never trump divine revelation. And in particular, they should never trump Scripture, right? And so Eliphaz revealed to us in chapters 4 and 5 what his worldview was, and that was, was based on his theology. And Eliphaz and his two companions wholeheartedly believe in this doctrine of retribution that we've talked about. So in other words, God rewards the righteous and he judges the wicked. That's what they base everything off of. And it serves as this foundation for the way in which Eliphaz chooses to see the world. And if you think about a house and the way that a house is built, everything about the house depends on the foundation. It stands on the foundation. Jesus even spoke about that. If the foundation's bad, when the wind comes, the house is going to fall. If the foundation is good, then the house will stand. And so everything that, that Eliphaz believes is based on this foundation uh, of his worldview, the way that he sees the world, and in particular this doctrine of retribution. Um, so we get to chapter 15 here, and I'm going to break this down into parts. But we'll look at the first six verses. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, so he's speaking to Job, second round, Does a wise man answer with empty counsel, or fill himself with hot east wind? Should he argue with useless talk, or with words that serve no good purpose? But you even undermine the fear of God, and hinder meditation before him. Your iniquity teaches you what to say, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. And so the first thing that we're going to see here, we're going to break this down into three parts, but we're going to see the state of Eliphaz's heart. 
here in these first six verses, and it's, it's what he says, right? Eliphaz continues this argument that we've already seen by all three of his friends, and he basically asks Job, how long are you going to go about continuing to blow hot air? He says, a wise man doesn't answer with empty words. And he's accusing Job of all these things. You've answered with empty words. He says, Job, your argument, it's useless. Your words serve no purpose. And you don't revere God like you should. You don't meditate on divine things and approach God in prayer like you should. That's an interesting argument by Eliphaz because Job's the only one that's spoken to God this whole time. But he says, you don't meditate on divine things the way you should. And you don't approach God the way you should. He says, your words are slick but you're not fooling anyone. And it's your own words that condemn you, Job. That's what he says. And if we think about Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, from the mouth speaks, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And he says, what basically is in your core is going to come out in the words that you speak. And so Eliphaz is arguing that the very words of Job reveal his state as a sinner. Right? And it's, it's his view that Job is, is attempting to deceive all of his friends and trying to deceive God. And that that approach is not going to get him anywhere. You can't fool me, Job, is what he's saying, and you can't fool God. But I think what's really going on is that Eliphaz's words have really revealed the very own state of his own heart. Not, not Job, they've revealed the state of his own heart. And in these six verses, what Eliphaz is doing is he's essentially calling Job a liar. And why would he believe that? And we've got to remember that he's not privy again to the information that we saw in chapters 1 and 2, right? He doesn't know all that God has, has said about Job. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes in the situation of Job. So we know that, and we know that Eliphaz is wrong about Job because we know God's own personal thoughts. We know what's going on behind the scenes. Eliphaz doesn't know that. But what leads him to his conclusion is not necessarily his lack of knowledge about that, but it's his own worldview. Again, that doctrine of retribution. He thinks that God's going to reward the righteous 100% of the time and punish the wicked 100% of the time. And it's through that lens that Eliphaz sees everything. And his words are what prove that. Here, here's the thing. A couple of things I'm going to say tonight that I want you to hear. And, and one of them is, in his heart, Eliphaz knows that Job cannot be right. Because if he is, then Eliphaz is forced to see things differently. That's what's going on. He, he thinks that Job can't be right because in the deep back corner of his mind, if Job's right, then everything I'm basing this on, my whole worldview is going to be turned upside down. So in order to hold on to his view of the world, this is the way that it is, Job has to be wrong. So, that's what you see in those first six verses. Job's words are useless. He fails to understand God. Or even better, what Eliphaz is really saying, is you don't understand the way I see things, Job. And the way that I see things is the right way. So he basically says that Job's words are nothing but, essentially, he wouldn't use this terminology, but Job's words are nothing more than a used car salesman routine. Right? He's just trying to get you to believe whatever he's got to get you to believe. For you to think that he's right. Eliphaz's worldview never entertains in the slightest that Job could be right. Because what would happen if he is, is his world would be rocked hard. In the next several verses in 7 through 16, we see what Eliphaz condemns. And that tells us a little bit about the state of his heart. 
It says, were you, he says, were you the first human ever born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on the counsel of God or have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we don't? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the elderly are with us, older than your father. Are God's consolations not enough for you, even the words that deal gently with you? Why has your heart misled you, and why do your eyes flash as, as you turn your anger against God and allow such words to leave your mouth? What is a mere human that he should be pure, or one born of a woman that he should be righteous? If God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his own sight, how much less one who is revolting and corrupt, who drinks injustice like water? Eliphaz turns up the heat here, and he condemns Job for rejecting his counsel and the counsel of the other two guys. And he sarcastically asks Job, he says, Do you think you're the first man that's ever been born? That's just another way to insinuate that Job thinks he's smarter and wiser than anybody else. You think you're the wisest guy on the planet? Were you here before everything else? He asked Job, have you listened in on the counsel of God? And what Eliphaz is saying here is that Job doesn't have secret access to God. That's what he's, he's claiming. It's what he's attacking Job with. You don't have access to God, so why do you act like you do? And why do you act like you know something that nobody else knows? And in fact, that's Eliphaz's next question. What do you understand that we don't, Job? Why do you think you're smarter than we are? He goes on to say, listen, there's older men around us, gray-headed, right? He's pointing to wisdom, right? They've been around a long time. Again, experience. They've seen a lot of things. And Job, you're just letting your emotions overtake you because you don't even recognize the experience that they have. You're not listening. You're not listening to the wisdom that they offer. You're just acting strictly off emotion. Then in verse 14, we get down to the nitty-gritty, what Eliphaz is really locked in on. He says, no man can be pure. No man can be righteous. God doesn't even trust his angels. How much less does he trust men who are only corrupt? I want you to... I want you to Highlight or something right there. Jot that down. We're going to come back to it. But this idea that Eliphaz is clinging to, that no man can be pure. It's, it's easy to see here. It's not rocket science. That Eliphaz is going out of his way to condemn Job for rejecting the counsel of his friends as though he has inside access to God. The, the implication here is that by rejecting his friends, Job is rejecting wisdom. That's what Eliphaz is accusing him of. In verse 11, this is specifically what Eliphaz says. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? When he speaks about the comforts of God, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about his own counsel and the counsel of the two friends. He sees his advice as the comforts of God. It's like, God sent us here to tell you this, Job, and you won't even listen. It's a pretty prideful position right there. So again, what we see is the position of Eliphaz's heart and his worldview. Again, you see back in his first speech, he places so much emphasis on personal experience. And what he's doing here is he's condemning Job for rejecting it. And so if he's condemning Job for rejecting it, then he's putting it on a pedestal. It's awful important to him. 
Again, all these men around you, he even throws a jab in there by, I mean, if you really want to hurt somebody, if you really want to cut them, what do you do? If you're in a locker room and you really want to take a hit at somebody, you're going to throw their mom into it. I watched a guy, this is totally off the cuff, but it'll be on the internet. But I mean, my first year coaching here, a guy made another comment about another guy's mom without knowing that that guy's mom had died of cancer, and he dropped him on the spot, and it was like a fountain. So he's, he's attacking Job here because he says, all these men are around with gray hair, and you're not listening. And guess what, Job? They're even older than your daddy. Do you listen to your dad? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, if you listen to your dad, these guys are twice as old. Why aren't you listening to them? Experience matters. So he puts all this great emphasis on personal experience. That's his worldview, man. That's the foundation through which Eliphaz sees everything. And the, and the fault here is that that foundation is built on the things of man. Because he places so much em- emphasis on experience. Then we move on to the, the last verses of his second speech here and we see he's talking about fear and we when we we come to find out what is it that eliphaz fears what's it say about the state of his heart starting in verse 17 it says listen to me and i will inform you so so he's he's thrown some jabs and now he's going to say let me tell you some truth job listen to me and i'll inform you i'll describe to you what i've seen again experienced what the wise have declared and not concealed that came from their ancestors, to whom alone the land was given when no foreigner passed among them. A wicked person rise in pain all of his days. Throughout the number of years reserved for the ruthless, dreadful sounds fill his ears. When he is at peace, a robber attacks him. He doesn't believe he'll return from darkness. He's destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, asking, where is it? He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Trouble and distress terrify him, overwhelming, overwhelming him like a king prepared for battle. For he has stretched out his hand against God and has arrogantly opposed the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with his thick studded shields. Through, though his face is covered with fat and his waistline bulges with it, he will dwell in ruined cities in abandoned houses destined to become piles of rubble. He will no longer be rich. His wealth will not endure. His possessions will not increase in the land. He will not escape from the darkness. Flames will wither his shoots, and by the breath of God's mouth he will depart. Let him not put trust in worthless things being led astray, for what he gets in exchange will prove worthless. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not flourish. He will be like a vine that drops its unripe grapes, and like an olive tree that sheds its blossoms. For the company of the godless will have no children, and fire will consume the tents of those who offer bribes. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their womb prepares deception. This is the largest section of Eliphaz's second speech. And it's kind of interesting that the man who accuses Job of blowing hot air spends a great deal of time just rambling on. But this section centers on this constant fear that the wicked man lives in. So Eliphaz describes this wicked man as writhing in pain. He's dreading sounds. He's, He's fearful of being found out. He's always on the run. That's the picture here. He's got nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't have food to eat. He's always looking around his shoulder. Is somebody going to track me down for all the things that I've done? So basically he knows I got it coming to me. That's the state that Eliphaz sees the wicked man living in. 
The wicked man doesn't prosper, and he struggles to get by. It's constant distress. Distress. He lives in constant darkness, and he never experiences wealth or any type of prosperity. He says specifically he's not going to have kids. He's going to live in ruins. He's not going to bear any fruit or blossom in any way. And there's a lot of talk here in this last section about fear. It's an emphasis. Fear. Eliphaz, is, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to use fear as a motivator. He's trying to push Job with fear. He's calling upon Job to fear God and repent. And again, it's that same idea that the righteous are going to be blessed and the wicked are going to come to ruin. And he's saying, Job, you're wicked. You need to repent because these are the things that are going to happen to you. And you better fear God and get straight. Now, what's interesting is certainly there are some wicked people in the world that live in this state. Okay? But there's also plenty of wicked individuals that appear to prosper and to, quite frankly, enjoy the way they live. Right? I've got a really good buddy of mine that uh, I worked with for a really long time. And uh, there would be situations where I would, I would look at that guy and I would just be like, man, we talk about a situation. And I'd say, how's that guy sleep at night? And he said, well, you know, I, th- I talked to one, a guy, he's a pretty wise guy, and I used to ask him the same questions about the same situations. And he'd look at me and say, pretty good. <laughs> so there's a lot of people that do a lot of terrible things and enjoy it. And sleep just fine. And they seem to prosper. Right? So something doesn't add up here. For someone who speaks so highly of experience, either Eliphaz's experience, his personal experience, is very limited, or he can't bring himself to admit that his perspective might be wrong. Because if we're talking about experience, my experience doesn't seem to match this. Your experience doesn't seem to match this. And it appears that while trying to move Job with fear, what Eliphaz really fears is being exposed. And he fears that his worldview could be wrong. But he's allowed it to become so entrenched that he refuses to back down. He's planted his flag on his poor theology. I read one commentary that put it this way. It says, Eliphaz, he can't even admit the fact, the frequent fact, of the untrammeled prosperity of the bad and the unrelieved misery of the good, let alone reconcile it with the justice of God. He doesn't even want to think about it. Eliphaz's worldview refuses to allow him to even consider that Job's telling the truth. He doesn't even consider it. Because the fear of that prospect is too great. Because if that's the case, then Eliphaz now would have to wrestle with the fact that he could experience the same trouble that Job's experiencing. That's what we're talking about at the root of it all. If Eliphaz's worldview is not right, then he's got to stand in front of the mirror and know the very thing that's happening to Job could happen to me. And he doesn't want to come to that reality. It's interesting, when I, when I, when I read this, and you're trying to work all this out, and, and how does this make sense, that the one thing that kept coming back to me was 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Through two five, and Paul says there he says, "For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to us who are being saved. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? 
Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Eliphaz's entrenched worldview that places such a high priority on personal experience reminds me of that passage right there. He considers Job's argument as complete foolishness for the same reasons that the lost in the world view the gospel as complete foolishness. He talks about that in verse 14. He says, what is a mere human? I told you we'd come back to this. What is a mere human that he should be pure? Or one born of a woman that he should be righteous? In other words, Job, you were born of a woman just like we were. You're nothing more than a man, and yet you claim to be pure. There's no way that's possible. And that's the same argument that many have of Jesus. He's a good man, but he was born from a woman just like I was. He's he's a good man, but nothing more. It's the same thing going on here. Then you see, you talk about true wisdom. True wisdom is found in Christ. Eliphaz argued with Job that he understands true wisdom as a result of his own experiences and the ones that came before him, all these wise men with gray hair that are older than your daddy, Job, that's true wisdom. That's where he placed his trust. But Paul points us to the fact that God made foolish the wisdom of the world. Eliphaz thinks he's got it figured out, but he doesn't. His theology is off. It's only what he sees as foolishness that can save a man. Notice that Christ crucified Paul Paul distinctly marks that as a stumbling block. And in a similar fashion, Eliphaz is stumbling over Job's situation and his claim. He refuses to see the truth because it would shake the foundations of what he believes. How many people treat Jesus Christ the same way? I refuse to believe because it's going to shake the foundation of what I believe or what I can do. I don't want to let it go. That's the conversation we have with so many people at the mission. What do you not want to let go? If I admit that Christ is Savior, then I'm going to have to let this go, and I don't want to let it go. That's the same thing Eliphaz is going through right here. He knows that if he he came to grips with the fact that Job could be telling the truth, he would totally have to reorient his life because his worldview would be turned upside down, and Eliphaz won't even let himself go there.
he's trying to motivate Job with fear. He, he says, Job, you don't fear God. And if you would rightfully fear him, then God will bring your back in, life back in line. You, if God would make you straight. Like you need to repent and get right with God. You need to fear him. And Eliphaz is right that man should fear God. Right? But if you go to Romans, and I think we talked about this before, but Paul points out in Romans 2.4, it's God's love and kindness that's intended to draw a man to repentance, not, not God's fear. Paul also speaks to that in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says that godly grief, here's another one of those places where jot something down, remember this. Godly grief produces a repentance unto salvation. Godly grief occurs when one understands the great love of God and the lengths that he's gone to offer salvation only to understand how that offer was rejected and mistreated. That's godly grief. Paul goes on to say, worldly grief produces death. And what worldly grief is, it's an implication of sadness over sin because of the consequences of sin. That's what Eliphaz is thrown in Job's face. Worldly grief. Hey, Job, you should fear God because of the result. This judgment for one that you're living in. That's why you should fear God. But the truth is that, going back to that passage in Corinthians, the foolishness of the gospel is a perfect balance of love and fear. It's the love found in the gospel offer, and the fear found in its rejection. Now, we've got to be real careful here when you're dealing with an Old Testament book. Because Eliphaz isn't privy to a full understanding of the gospel as we know it. Right? But in some ways, he's rejecting its very premise because of the worldly wisdom that he so entrenched himself in. He won't let it go. Job fires back in 16 and 17. And in 16 he says, I've heard many things like these. You're all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? He said, listen, dude, you're, calling, you're telling me I'm blowing hot air? Is there any end to your empty comfort? What provokes you to continue testifying? In other words, I've heard this whole experience thing before, man. Why you got to keep throwing it in my face? How long are you going to continue testifying? If I, if I were you, if you were in my place, I could also talk like you. I could string words together against you, and I could shake my head at you. Instead, here's what I'd do. I would encourage you with my mouth, and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. If I speak, my suffering is not relieved. And if I hold back, does any of it leave me? Surely he has now exhausted me. You have devastated my entire family. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness. My frailty rises up against me and testifies to my face. His anger tears at me and he harasses me. He gnashes his teeth at me. My enemy pierces me with his eyes. They open their mouths against me and strike my cheeks with content. And they join themselves together against me. God hands me over to the unjust. He throws me to the wicked. I was at ease, but he shattered me. He seized me by the scuff of the, the scruff of the neck and smashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my kidneys without mercy and pours my bile on the ground. He breaks through my defenses again and again. He charges at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. I have buried my strength in the dust. My face has grown red with weeping and darkness covers my eyes. 
Although my hands are free from violence and my prayer is pure. Earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. Even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is in the heights. My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I wish that someone might argue for a man with God just as anyone would for a friend. For only a few years will pass before I go the way of no return. Job is speaking here about exclusively about the sovereignty of God. He says, Eliphaz and Zophar, you're the, you've accused me of blowing hot air, useless speech, but, but you're the ones that are blowing the hot air. He says, you speak from an easy position. It'd be real easy for me to do the same thing you're doing. It's easy to second guess people. It's easy to pass judgment. I could do it if the roles were reversed. All you've done is brought me pain. His friends have told Job that he's going about this the whole wrong way, that he's speaking to God out of turn. And it's interesting what Job says in verse 6. He says, if I speak, my suffering is not relieved. And if I hold back, does any of it leave me? He says, whether I speak or not, the result is the same. God is the one that's in control. And God's going to do what God's going to do. Surely there's purpose in it. Job just doesn't know what it is. And what follows is this long description of how Job sees his rejection from God. And it's interesting. I think verse seven, verses 7 through 17 draw a stark comparison with the rejection and the crucifixion of Jesus. In verse 7 he says, God has worn me out. He is doing this. Also the company of Job has vanished just like the company of Christ vanished in its final hour. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Violence has struck me through the hands of other men just as Christ was beaten and mocked by men. The masses gathered against Job, and the masses have gathered against Christ. They yelled, Crucify him, crucify him. In verse 11, Job was given over to the wicked, and only his life was spared. Christ was handed over to the wicked, and his life wasn't spared. He was completely forsaken. His own words. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 16, Job was full of grief, just like Christ was when he was in the garden. Verse 17, Job says, although my hands are free from violence and my prayer is pure, Job still claims to the fact that he's blameless. He didn't deserve the situation that he found himself in, just as Christ was completely sin-free and didn't deserve the wrath of God that was poured out on him. Job's situation is extreme. I can't imagine a worse situation as an individual. And yet, here's the thing. Here's one of the key takeaways. Through Christ, God demonstrated that he has not, he does not, and he will not allow you to experience anything that he's not willing to experience himself. We were in the Passover meal last night, and that's, that's, the, whole, that's the whole point of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He's saying, listen, you're about to go out and you're about to be our representative. And you're going to have to get dirty. You're going to have to get your hands dirty. But I'm, guess what? I'm going to show you how. I'm willing to do more than I'm asking you to do. And he proved it by going to the cross. Again, towards the end of this chapter, we see Job's desire for an advocate. His friends scorn him. But Job's conscience remains clear, and he pours out his heart to God. He's confident that, that he's blameless. He hasn't partaken in any grievous sin. 
But he's open to the fact, as we pointed out in previous weeks, he's open to the fact that there may be unknown sin in my life. And he cries out, is there not somebody that can argue my case before God? He longs for this advocate that could talk with God like a man talks to his neighbor. And what Job doesn't know is that this advocate is coming and will experience loss just like he has. Again, God is willing to experience beyond what we experience in order that some may come to know him. The deeper and deeper that we get into this book of Job, the more a man must realize his similar need for an advocate. And that advocate is Jesus. That's the only way that man can be made right before God. So we move on to chapter 17 as we, as we wrap this week up. And Job says, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. A graveyard awaits me. Surely mockers surround me, and my eyes must gaze at their rebellion. Accept my pledge. Put up security for me. Who else will be my sponsor? You have closed their minds to understanding. Therefore, you will not honor them. If a man denounces his friends for a price, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me an object of scorn to the people. I have become a man people spit at. My eyes have grown dim from grief, and my whole body has become but a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent are roused against the godless. Verse 9 is key. Yet the righteous person will hold to his way, and the one whose hands are clean will grow stronger. But come back and try again, all of you. I will not find a wise, I will not find a wise man among you. My days have slipped by. My plans have been ruined. Even the things dear to my heart, they turned night into day and made light seem near in the face of darkness. If I await Sheol as my home, spread out my bed in darkness and say to corruption, you are my father. And to the maggot, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of Sheol or will we descend together to the dust? All we see in chapter 17 is the complete brokenness of Job. That's what he says as he opens a chapter. My spirit is broken. He pleads with God to not forget him, even though all those around him have forsaken him. And, and I think, again, you're, you're compelled to see the similarity here between Job's condition and Christ on the cross. Job's like, they got people spitting at me. People did the same thing with Christ. And like I said, verse 9, that's where the emphasis is. Despite Job's up and down, this is a roller coaster of emotions going on. Despite that roller coaster, he tells us that the righteous hold to his way and the one who has clean hands will only grow stronger. Understand this, that stronger doesn't equate with ease. So strong doesn't mean easy. Job's situation, it's not getting easier. But his faith and his reliance on God can make him stronger even in the most difficult times. The truly righteous man doesn't waver in his reliance on God. He may not understand everything, and he may question some things, but he doesn't question God's authority and sovereignty. That's it. We can't, I keep going back, man. I just keep coming back to hear the broken record. But John 66, 6, man, to, to whom are we going to go? You think Peter had it figured out right there? He's saying, listen, Jesus, I got no clue what the heck's going on. But I got faith in you. Lead us on. You don't have to have it figured out, man. That's what Job's saying. I don't have it figured out. But I'm going to rely on my faith in God, even when I don't have it figured out. And I'm not going to waver. Job struggles to find any hope. He's got good moments and bad. And at the, we get to the end of that chapter, and it's leaning heavily towards the bad. 
But there's always a sliver of reliance on the one true God. So, what's the personal implications? What, what we got to take into the next week? Just a few things. The first is that worldview matters, man. Worldview matters. So you see in this whole conversation with Eliphaz that, that a worldview matters greatly. It functions as the lens through which you see everything. Eliphaz placed such a high, high emphasis on experience that he couldn't consider anything that threatened his belief system. He didn't want Job to be innocent because that would turn the way he saw things upside down. R- Romans 12.2 speaks about that. It speaks about worldview. Paul says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Eliphaz couldn't discern the will of God because his worldview was so entrenched. He didn't allow his mind to be renewed. Paul calls on us to renew our mind. We've we've got to be shaped. Our mind and everything we do should be shaped by the Word of God. That's the foundation. That's the foundation to our worldview. All that we see, think, and do should be shaped by Scripture. And when we place too much emphasis on the wisdom of the world, we begin to distort the truth. And what happens, or the result of that, is foolishness. Again, turn on the television. Foolishness. Turn on the news. Foolishness. We were talking this morning about how things like this. Anybody know that before this morning? Things like, but what is this? It's pretty dang logical. And you see the things that the world tells us are truth today. That ain't logical. That's foolishness. Worldview matters. So when we think about our kids, worldview matters. Worldview matters. When I encounter kids in high school, and I tell you what's heartbreaking is the number of kids that that I encounter in high school that I feel like I got a decent grasp of who they are, and then they go off to college and come back and they've been totally warped. And all that says is that the foundation wasn't there. Or whatever foundation was there was too weak to stand up to the test that they encountered. And so I think what we have to do, and I don't do a good enough job, but we, we've got to do everything we can with our kids to create that foundation that will not be shaken. When they, and, and you can go, well, I don't, I don't think my kid's going to go to college. Great. They're going to walk out that door. <laughs> doesn't matter if they go to college or not. They're going to encounter things that are going to shake, be attempts to shake their foundation. So what kind of foundation are we providing? The second thing is just the foolishness of the gospel. 1 Corinthians makes it clear that the world will view the gospel as foolishness. The Christian worldview is going to be mocked at every turn because it directly contradicts what the world views as wisdom. We see a hint of that with Eliphaz as he rejects Job's message, but we've got to see it in our own interactions with others. The lost are going to only gain the ability to reject worldly wisdom when they're illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't eliminate our requirement to evangelize. Instead, what it does is it necessitates our requirement to pray for the lost that their eyes will be open. And again, we have to also pray for our own strength to reject worldly wisdom that's put before us every day. Again, all we see, think, and do should be rooted in a knowledge and trust in Scripture. We've got to be grounded in 1 Corinthians one thirty one that says our boasting should be in the Lord. It's not in ourselves; it's in the Lord. And the third thing is 
just God's love demonstrated. Job suffered in many ways that mirrored the suffering of Christ in his final days. And it should be an overwhelming encouragement to us because it demonstrates God's immense love for us. Right? Many times we struggle. That's the nature of humanity. We struggle with something and we're tempted to believe this idea that, man, nobody's ever struggled like this before. Just me. Like we're the first person to ever encounter that situation. But we know that other people have too. And, and the greatest example is the suffering of Christ. God doesn't allow us to experience anything that he wasn't willing to experience himself. And then the last thing is just what Job said about holding fast. Right? He described himself as disregarded, as looked down upon by men. He'd grown weary from all his suffering and his frustration. He'd been beat down about as bad as a man could be beaten down. And his hope was waning. He had good moments and bad, and he saw no way out. And he didn't understand what was going on. No one appeared to be on his side. Everybody had seemed to left. And even in that situation, there was always a remnant of faith in God that didn't waver. Certainly at times it's smaller. That remnant is smaller than other times. Your faith is smaller at times than it is at others. But it's always there. Job 17.9 should be a verse that we cling to in difficulty, one that we should know by heart. Yet the righteous holds to his way. And he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. As bad as it may be, our only true hope and our only source of strength is in God. Everything else will eventually fail us, but God never will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of these three chapters in Job and, and what they show us, Lord. And I, think, I love how we have the benefit of seeing the, the whole picture of Scripture and how these three chapters from so, so, so many years ago are directly linked with the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that the world is going to see what we believe is foolishness, but that doesn't call us to, to stifle our own mouths. You know, as, as Dale talked about this morning, you know, our job is to, to share our blood and to get other people to paint their doorposts. And Lord, regardless of, of what our situation is personally, that's what we're called to do in good times, in bad times. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would point others to you through what we say, through what we do, just everything that other people see about us. Lord, I thank you for the example of Job and how even in the most difficult of circumstances, even if it was just a tiny bit, he still clinged to his faith in you. And I pray that we would do the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.